Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled, Practice, Why Consistency Matters and Some Ways to Build It, by Eric Weinberg. This talk is a reflection on questions. How do we live Dharma moment to moment, day by day? How can we evolve those momentary flashes of insight we get in practice into a way of being? If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Texum Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. My name is Eric Weinberg. I'm a volunteer meditation instructor, and um, I was invited to give today's talk. When I was thinking about the uh, subject of this talk, I couldn't come up with much. And then I thought to myself, well, what's most valuable to me? I've been practicing Dharma for over 20 years, and I learned to meditate originally and started a daily practice in 1974 and the thing that came to me that was most valuable above all things is consistency with practice it does evolve and change but having consistent practice has built uh, strength that has definitely enriched my life so i wanted to share uh, some thoughts about that with you i've uh retitled the talk, uh, A Day in the Life, No, Not the Beatles Song. However, that song kind of does relate. Um, the, the quote that inspired um, me to uh, go along the lines I'm going to go along is, you will see in the world what you carry in your heart. And it became more apparent to me than ever that this is true. And that's where consistency fits in to the degree that every day we can remind ourselves um, what is most deeply true to us, what is most deeply precious to us, we can actually begin to engender a life that has a true line and a preciousness and out of that preciousness you know happiness can come which is what we're all motivated by uh, according to his whole holiness dalai lama and i think he's right that's what all living beings want so that's where this talk came from in order to begin uh, one of the consistent things we do and actually part of daily practice is the four-line refuge prayer. What I would like to do today is to recite it one time in English and ask you to really think deeply, contemplate deeply of uh, what your connection to each of those lines is. Until I reach the heart of enlightenment, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. And I take refuge in the Sangha. By accomplishing the six perfections, generosity, and the rest. I vow to achieve enlightenment for the benefit of all beings without exception. Simply praying this with intention and attention contemplating the uh, lines that are there just reaffirms our connection to 
our own enlightened nature, which is there whether we can see it or not, and is in all beings, whether we can see it or not. It reaffirms our connection to the teachings of the Buddha, which are always available and really are available in the events of our lives if we know how to look deeply. And our connection to all those who are looking and seeing Buddha and looking and seeing Dharma and the support that we have because we are together in this. So we've been doing some study contemplation, meditation, and reflection for some time. And some of us, probably all of us, have had some glimpses of the interdependent universe of being and, having, and have had some feeling of being at home in the world. The question is, how do we live this moment and the next and the next day by day? How can we evolve these momentary flashes of insight into stable realization? Well, what does that even mean? Stable realization. And why is it important? In Buddhism, it means keeping your vows the vow not to harm yourself or others, the vow to be loving, the vow to maintain the view that all living beings have the same nature as Buddha. Lovely, lovely thoughts, but we have these minds with their habits and their propensities and deeply ingrained reactivities that spring out of us automatically when some button is pushed or some demand needs to be met or some habit needs to be served. Like for me, I have um, a habit of wanting to be perfect and wanting to get a pat on the head for stuff that I do, all that stuff. We label everything that comes up, everything we encounter, internally and externally. We label and view through a certain lens that we call me or our truth and so on. So stable realization is one of those things that's easy to think about, but challenging because this um, way that we see through filters, isn't that. So our teachers have given us practices that strengthen us to meet this challenge. And it is important that we do it, that we do it. And it's important that we tame our minds to let harmful thoughts and actions go and engender love and empathy our happiness and the happiness of others depend on it. That's the thing. And we know that when we've um, done some of these practices, for a while at least, our, our uh, Buddha nature is a little bit more uncovered. And um, our resonance with others and the best in others is a little more evident. And our empathy is easy to access. And yet, lately, especially with COVID and all the um, turmoil that we have in our world right now, wars, 
environmental problems and so forth. I've heard many, many, many of my friends express concern that their practice seems to have lost steam. We're struggling to find motivation to do any form of sitting meditation. And those that sit struggle to maintain mindfulness in post-meditation. And those that maintain mindfulness during the day completely lose it during the sleep and dream states. Many of us have lost our precious gurus, the lights in our life, like Kempo Kartha Rinpoche, like Barter Tulku Rinpoche, and so many others. Many have seen their local meditation centers closed. Here in Columbus, thankfully, we've been fortunate and we're we closed and went online when our center burned down five years ago, and now we're rebuilding and hope to re be able to reopen soon. Um, you know, COVID and so on permitting. Many have seen uh, that people they looked up to have failed in scandal and controversy. These are tough times. But if we're finding it hard to stay motivated, we have to look at ourselves because the Dharma hasn't changed and the teachings are still there and we've received them. If we're finding it hard to stay motivated, it might be because our overall goal of meditation practice has been, become clouded. We may think of it as therapy instead of practice and development and growth. Or we may think of it as like a real grind, like shamatha self-mortification of some kind or another. And Vipassana or insight meditation is some kind of quaint kind of abstract thing that we just play around with like we would a Sudoku or a crossword puzzle. Well, they do actually look like that to the ego, to this obscured self with its habits and propensities. But they are also, when we can uh, let go of our grasping to that ego, they also might bring light to the darkness and energy to the dullness, and insight to confusion. They have before. Maybe it's time to try again, but this time, what I've been thinking is maybe try again using a different understanding. For me, at least, I find it helpful to understand something of where the obstacles come from in the first place and how practice helps helps us develop and sets the stage for accomplishing the stability we seek and understanding of how to stay with it when we're off the cushion. I believe that by integrating our practice with our life, our practice will be energized and our lives will be enriched and even problems and challenges could be lightened into something spirited, something, something to engage. So in uh, trying to think of a way to express where this comes from, I thought about things that I've read by um, Thich Nhat Hanh, which I think are very to the point and helpful. So as regards the origin, of the obstacles that come up for us, you know, the fear and the anger and um, the bewilderment. He gave this teaching. He said, many of us don't remember this, but a long time ago, we lived inside our mother's wombs. We were tiny living human beings. 
There were two hearts inside your mother's body, her own heart and your heart. During this time, your mother did everything for you. She breathed for you, ate for you, drank for you. You were linked to her through her umbilical cord. Oxygen and food came to you through that cord, and you were safe and content inside your mother. You were never too hot or too cold. You were very comfortable. You rested on a soft cushion made of water. In China and Vietnam, we call the womb the palace of the child. You spent about nine months in the palace. The nine months you spent in the womb were some of the most pleasant times of your life. Then the day of your birth arrived. Everything felt different around you, and you were thrust into a new environment. You felt cold and hunger for the first time. Sounds were too loud, lights were too bright. For the first time, you felt afraid. This is original fear. Inside the palace of the child, you didn't need to use your own lungs. But at the moment of your birth, someone cut the umbilical cord and you were no longer physically joined with your mother. Your mother could no longer breathe for you. You had to learn how to breathe on your own for the first time. If you couldn't breathe on your own, you would die. Birth was an extremely precarious time. You were pushed out of the palace and you encountered suffering. You tried to inhale, but it was difficult. There was some liquid in your lungs and to breathe in, you had to first push out that liquid. We were born, and with that birth, our fear was born along with the desire to survive. This is original desire. As infants, each one of us knew that to survive, we had to get someone to take care of us. Even after our umbilical cord was cut, we still had to rely entirely on adults to survive. When you depend on someone or something else to survive, it means that a link, a kind of invisible umbilical cord, is still there between you. When we grow up, our original fear and original desire are still there. Although we are no longer babies, we still fear that we cannot survive, that no one will take care of us. Every desire, we have in our lives has its root in this original fundamental desire to survive. As babies, we all find ways to ensure our survival. We may have felt very powerless. We had legs but couldn't walk. We had hands but couldn't grasp anything. We had to figure out how to get someone else to protect us, take care of us, and ensure our survival. Everyone is afraid sometimes. We fear loneliness, being abandoned, and growing old, dying and being sick, among many other things. Sometimes we may feel fear without knowing why. We work with this every day. It's, um, it's underneath all of our reactivity. All of it. It's underneath the habits that we have and the way we, we react to things or the way we um, look at things, the way we regard them. We label the things of our life in this way, friend and enemy and inconsequential. Helpful, not helpful, doesn't matter, so forth. And that labeling is what the Buddha referred to as clinging. The stories that uh, surround our labeling of life, of all the things in our life, 
the stories we tell ourselves are clinging and our desire for what we want and our desire to get away from what we don't want and our desire to ignore the things that bewilder us. Well, that's craving. Those are the things we crave. We crave to be free of annoyances and fearful situations. And we crave to feel safe and well cared for. But reality really is not structured at all based on our clinging and our craving. And that's why the Buddha originally taught that we need to work on this clinging and craving through the practices of mindfulness, calm abiding meditation, and ultimately insight meditation. When we understand shamatha, mindfulness meditation, and vipassana, insight meditation from this point of view, it's not self-mortification at all. It's not therapeutic. It's something much deeper than that. It's something about coming into relationship with a deeper essence of ourselves, which is, in fact, Buddha nature itself. But we don't have the habit of it. So the recommendation I'm making here today is to start our day with some form of practice. Start our day every day to remind ourselves um, of this dynamic and of the Buddha nature that is already planted in us. So what I was thinking about when I thought about this was that desire and fear get tangled up in me all day long. And so I get impacted by worry that I won't get what I want and I will get what I don't want and so on and so on. Given that I've been obscured like this from birth and it's likely my most ingrained mental habit, when I get up in the morning, more often than not, there it is. I find it helpful to know why. And this ex explanation by Thich Nhat Hanh has been helpful for me, and I hope it is uh, helpful for you too. Sometimes within these feelings, I find a way that uh, I can respond with kindness towards a fussy baby rather than with judgment because of my expectations of myself being uh, better. Sometimes I can respond to these things that come up right from the first with empathy and without judgment. And worse, you know, when even when I'm judgmental, there's still a worse thing that I do, and I think most of us do, is when some kind of um, afflictive emotion comes up, I bury it. That's the worst. Because what gets buried just becomes a seed for something that will grow again. It'll definitely come back. And when a lot of it's been buried, It'll come back stronger. Because we can get the concept of realization, but don't experience it due to being imprisoned and weakened by these mental poisons of hatred, attachment, and bewilderment. What we've been taught is that we need an antidote. And we need to strengthen different mental habits than the ones that have been ingrained in us since birth. We need to take a different view. This is one of the main 
purposes of Dharma practice. Personally, I find that the practices that I've been given um, in the Dharma are incredibly well designed to bring me along uh, step by step, to strengthen otherwise weak, positive qualities and subdue negative propensities and open my mind to the presence of the energy of enlightenment. So I regard practice as a way of training. I, do, I regard these practices that we've been given as some of the best designed exercise equipment and coaching ever. And the reason it's the best is that its aim is liberation. Its aim is to liberate this Buddha nature from the imprisonment of anger and fear and bewilderment. So let me give you an example. There's a prayer that Bokar Rinpoche shared, and um, it's something that I do the first thing in the morning. Why? Because no matter what that first thought is when I wake up, even if the first thought is, oh, I want to go back to sleep, no matter what, um, I can do this prayer. And it wakes up something else inside of me. It reminds me of the view. And and, I, and by doing it in English, which I strongly recommend, uh, it really helps because I understand English. When we're working with the mind, it seems obvious to me that understanding helps a lot. So here's the prayer in English. This was written by Bokar Rinpoche. Today, from this instant on until the moment in the evening when I fall asleep, I will exert myself to accomplish all the positive and reject all the negative. I will practice the Dharma to become able to help all beings be free from suffering and progress toward liberation. Today, I will avoid causing harm through my physical activity. I will avoid causing harm through my speech. I will avoid causing harm through my thoughts. Today, I will do my best to engage in beneficial physical activity. I will do my best to speak useful and pleasant words. I will do my best to nourish well-wishing thoughts for all beings. The rest of my daily practice follows from there. I, I contemplate what's known as the four thoughts that turn the mind. Um, because those thoughts, the thoughts of the preciousness of this moment, this life that I have right now, the impermanence of it, the fragility of it, the way that it's affected by everything I think, do, and say, that everything I've thought, done, and said, in the past and will think, do, and say in the future is powerful. And that, and that samsara, this world that I depend on to provide what I want for me and help me avoid what I don't want is totally undependable. You can find good texts and explanation of the four thoughts in a lot of places, and I encourage you to look at them. The important thing with them is to not leave them just sterile as 
you know, some uh, philosophical position, but to really think about uh, the truth of them for you personally to the point where it changes your uh, it changes your channel, so to speak, from thinking that samsara is going to give you what you want and recognize the preciousness of your life because it won't give you what you want and it won't recognize the preciousness of your life. So change the channel to your Buddha nature channel, which actually does recognize your preciousness and does and does take you to the place of liberation, which when you feel it, you realize it is happiness. Then of course we've been given another thing that you know, it's easy to take for granted this refuge prayer. Um, and by praying it with intention and really thinking about it and understanding it, we remember the light. And we remember the transmission of the light. And we remember that we're not alone. Refuge always goes along with bodhicitta in our practices. And again, this is something that is just um, so common for us that sometimes we don't take a moment to deeply contemplate it. And yet if we do, that's a practice every morning that will bring great fruit all day long for us. Why? Because bodhicitta isn't just engendering a heart that wishes for enlightenment and the enlightenment of all beings that really um, that really connects to kindness and freedom and joy and peace. Yeah, it's all of that, but when we really contemplate it and meditate upon it in the morning, it's an empowerment. It's an empowerment to have the view of presence and love and compassion embodied in the six qualities that we want to see grow and flourish in our life. So through this empowerment, we're like fertilizing those qualities. And we're likely to see some of them just flow out of us naturally as responses to whatever we encounter, as opposed to our reactivity that's driven by this fear and this desire that is kind of automatic and programmed in since birth and probably even before birth. Another thing that I do, and you've got to understand, this can all happen in well, 10 minutes, is open my shrine. We can just do that by uh, pouring water in bowls and lighting some lights or putting out some flowers, whatever we do, and doing the offering prayer. Or we can contemplate it and deeply consider what we're doing and who we're doing it for. So um, if we really contemplate the mandala of our life, the vastness, the connectedness, of our life to all and everything in this thing that we consider our universe. And that there's Buddha nature in everything, in every atom of everything. And the bodhisattvas are surrounding 
those Buddhas that are in every atom of everything inside and out. And we make these offerings. We make a connection to this realization of the vastness. The vastness of goodness in our lives. And we offer it back. And by this kind of feedback loop of sharing, um, it kind of uh, it kind of triggers the idea that it's possible that we have resources that we've not discovered yet. In fact, we may actually be connected to limitless resources and limitless beneficial activities. In addition to all those, you know, I, I like to think, I encourage others and myself to look for any practice that I feel a pull from, that we might feel a pull from. So. A short yidam practice of some kind, a short guru yoga of some kind, whatever, whatever it is that guides your mind in the process of mixing your mind with an enlightened being and then dissolving your own enlightened nature so that you see yourself as part of everything and you see everything as part of you and re-arising as that um, enlightened being well this is a good way to start the day and like i said we can do this in 10 minutes and if we do it with understanding and um, reflection and contemplation when we get up off the cushion and we leave our house, we'll leave our house with the view that uh, life is vast and that we have Buddha nature and that others have Buddha nature and that no matter what we're doing, we're involved with uncovering that Buddha nature and creating the causes and conditions for it to flourish, that's the object of the exercise. So the Talmud says, every blade of grass has its angel that bends over it and whispers, grow, grow. Imagine the face of a child when he or she hears, you are so precious, you can do it. I'm so glad you were born. Picture the look on a loved one's face in response to, you are perfect, just as you are. You are such a joy. I am here for you. Thank you for being in my life. When we practice in the morning and strengthen this um, view and we engender meditation on life itself in our um, time of uh, walking and sitting and eating and working and so forth. And we have um, our responses to things out of that. Wow. That whole thing, that whole little business I said at the beginning, you will see in the world what you carry in your heart will absolutely transform. And that's what the Buddha Dharma is about, is transforming life from the inside out 
Lama Kathy often says, happiness is an inside job. The truth is we have to do the work inside ourselves. Nobody else can do that work. So there's another concept that Thich Nhat Hanh has shared that I think is extremely powerful. The concept is the mind is a gardener throughout your day. So one of my favorite books of his is a book, Understanding Our Mind. And uh, you probably can find it at a used bookstore or online. It's not expensive. It's well worth, um, it's well worth having and reading. So here's, here's this, um, way that he talks about the mind as a gardener throughout your day. I love this very much. Mind consciousness acts as a gardener to cultivate positive or negative states of mind. Mind consciousness is the root of all actions of body and speech. Its nature is to manifest mental formations, but its existence is not continuous. Mind consciousness gives rise to actions that lead to ripening. It plays the soul, it plays the role of the gardener, sowing all the seeds. Mind consciousness gives rise to two kinds of action. One is leading action which draws us in one direction or another. Too often, delusion provides the road and deludes beings and deluded beings show us the direction. But when the Buddha provides the road and the Sangha shows the way, it's beneficial for us. The second kind of action is called ripening action. Our actions bring about the ripening of either wholesome or unwholesome seeds in our store consciousness. Mind consciousness makes both kinds of actions possible. Actions that propel us in a certain direction, whether for good or bad, and actions that mature the fruit of the seeds that are already present within us. Any action of body, speech, and mind that we take based on mind consciousness waters either positive or negative seeds within us. If we water negative seeds, the result will be suffering. If we know how to water positive seeds, there will be more understanding, love, and happiness. If mind consciousness learns to see in terms of impermanence, Buddha nature, and interdependence, it will help the seed of enlightenment to grow and bloom like a flower. And this is why mindfulness is important. We've been taught a powerful practice to work with our mental states off the cushion. So. Yeah, before I get into that. So that's what Thich Nhat Hanh was talking about. No matter what we think, do, or say, we're watering seeds in our consciousness. If we want enlightenment to grow and flourish and blossom, we have to water the seeds of enlightenment. If we don't want mental afflictions to grow and flourish, then we have to not water those seeds. So when anger comes up or any of the uh, afflictive emotions, fear, hatred, jealousy, pride, ignorance, blind desire, well, when those come up, we need to be able to recognize them. They're going to come up. 
because obviously that's the setup there in us. We've planted those seeds in the past and they're part of our ground consciousness. They're seeds planted in that ground in our mind. So as a gardener, mindfulness is important. We have to understand what those seeds look like and not add to the causes and conditions for them to flourish. But we need to also know that the seeds of those six perfections are planted within us too. The seeds of generosity, the seeds of ethics, the seeds of patience, of joyful diligence, the seeds of meditation, and the seeds of wisdom. And wisdom is Buddha nature itself, all there, all already there. And life is going to give us so many opportunities all day long to respond to things that come our way in such a way that waters those seeds. So that's what our practices are all about, helping us to learn to identify those seeds and how to work with whatever comes up so that the seeds that we're watering are the seeds of enlightenment. And so that we're not adding, you know, more seeds of mental afflictions to the soil of our mind. Well, how do we do that? First of all, starting the day um, with a prayer like the one I read, with refuge, with bodhicitta, with some kind of identification with your own Buddha nature, and of course, with some shamatha. Shamatha is the foundation for all of this. Um, is really important because they all strengthen the abilities we have to be good gardeners. But then when we get this onslaught throughout our days, and we all know that days can be difficult and challenging and um, can throw us curveballs all the time, Well, um, sometimes we become overwhelmed, but we don't have to be. And we might remember that we don't have to be. There's one practice that's been uh, part of my off the cushion life ever since Lama Kathy taught it uh, in classes that she taught about what's called lojong or mind training. And this practice is for me, the ultimate off the cushion practice. It's called three objects, three poisons and three seeds of virtue. Here's the gist of it. First of all, we don't run away from our feelings. We don't bury them. We feel them. And in fact, we identify them. But instead of spinning off into the story about this thing or that thing or some justification for why we feel that way and why it's okay and on and on and on, we take the emotion and plug its energy into an aspiration. And the aspiration goes something like this. May my fill in the negative mental affliction contain the negative mental affliction of all sentient beings. And by my working through this moment of negative mental affliction, may I and all beings be free of it. And furthermore, may we all become Buddhas, which is really the complete freedom from mental affliction. We can do this at any time. We can do this with physical suffering. 
we can say, may my headache contain the pain of all sentient beings. And by my working through this moment, may I and all beings be free of pain. And furthermore, may we become Buddhas, the complete freedom from pain and suffering. And when we're happy, we can think, may my happiness be shared with all sentient beings. And by my sharing this happiness with all sentient beings, may we all have goodness and happiness and come to Buddhahood, which is the complete freedom from clinging to happiness. The store consciousness is often described as the earth, the garden where the seeds that give rise to flowers and fruit are sown there. The mind consciousness is the gardener and the one who sows, waters, and takes care of the earth. That is why it is said that the mind consciousness gives rise to actions leading to ripening or maturation. The maturation of our seeds, mind consciousness can submerge us in the hell realms or lead us to liberation because both hell and liberation are the result of the ripening of their respective seeds. Mind consciousness does the work of initiating and it does the work of ripening. If it sows wheat seeds, we grow wheat and so forth. You reap what you sow. The gardener, mind consciousness, has to trust the earth because it is the earth that brings forth the fruit of understanding and compassion. And the earth here means that home consciousness that's even beneath, even beneath the mind consciousness. It's called the Alaya consciousness or storehouse consciousness in um, Buddhist psychology. So the mind consciousness is the gardener and we train it to be a good gardener and it's working with this deeper layer of consciousness, this eighth layer, the Alaya consciousness to bring forth a flourishing of Buddha nature. The gardener also has to recognize and identify the positive seeds in the storehouse, the Alaya consciousness, and practice to water those seeds and help them grow. The garden ecosystem brings about the result, all of it together. The flower of awakening, understanding, and love is a gift from the garden. The gardener only has to take good care of the garden in order for the flower to have a chance to grow. So by doing practice to find a way to be consistent in practice, to enliven it, engage in it, is actually turning us into a good gardener so that the ecosystem works and is healthy. The Sangha is a great help in our practice of mindfulness. When we're surrounded by others who are practicing, speaking mindfully, listening mindfully, and acting mindfully, we are inspired and motivated to do the same because we can see the goodness of it and the happiness is palpable. Eventually, mindfulness becomes a habit. And with mindfulness, transformation and healing are also possible. So that's how a day goes. It becomes like um, working in an ecosystem, realizing we're a vital part of it, not separate. And that our practice and the way we work with our mind is what our main job is in all of that. Then at the end of the day, getting ready for sleep, I like to review it all. <laughs> 
look at the harvest. I offer the day for the sake of enlightenment and imagine the Buddha being pleased and blessing me and all beings and melting into light and flowing into me, finding his home in my heart. And then I sleep. Longchenpa said, the greatest merit is when a being, even for one instant of joy, practices love. So that's the object of the exercise, is to engender joy. And in the midst of joy, to practice love. I think by keeping um, the goal in mind and understandings of the goal, when we say Buddha nature and Buddhahood and all of that, enlightenment, what does that mean? Well, it means something like this thing that Longchenpa says. The greatest merit is when a being, even for one instant of joy, practices love. Lama Tony, I will leave you with this. <clears throat> There's a Western teacher, uh, Lama Tony Duff. He's a great translator. And he's written, translated tons of stuff, and he's written some stuff. He said, if you would like to accumulate more merit, or you would like to create the cause for well-being. Or if you would like to create the cause for being able to do this kind of practice every day without fail, simply stop there in front of the shrine. He's talking about it. The end of morning practice when you've made your shrine offerings and take a minute to reflect on the value of what you have just done. Let it sink in. Then truly take deep joy in that. Rejoicing in that way creates the conditions for the expansion of merit that's been gathered and also creates a swell of energy for wanting to do such practice again. I've heard it said that gratitude, when you feel joy like that, of course you feel grateful. I've heard it said that gratitude is the ultimate dedication. I like that. So let's take a moment now and dedicate the merit of this uh, hour of listening to the Dharma, hearing it. Let's dedicate the merit of any moment of inspiration that you might have had in this way that Lama Tony talks about. Reflect on the value of it. And take deep joy in it. And let that joy radiate out as love in this whole web of inner being and interconnection, of interdependence that connects everything to you, your whole mandala. and that keeps you connected to everything. Fill those connections with that love. That's what we do all day long. I dedicate every trifle of virtue 
that's been accumulated in this Dharma talk. May all beings benefit. May all beings be happy and have the causes of happiness. May they enjoy freedom, freedom from suffering and the cause of suffering. May they remain in perfect joy. And abide in equanimity, peace, free from having to call this thing a friend or that thing an enemy or that other thing confusing. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Texum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.